Good to see everybody here. Fourth of, uh, happy Fourth to you. And uh, I want to ask you if you would take your Bibles out today and turn with me to Psalm 33. And we're going to look this morning at the subject matter, the potential for our nation. Now before we get into that, I do just uh, want to remind you a minute of some of the uh, uh, deaths that we have in our church family or related to our church family that we want to be praying for. Uh, Joe Teeter, she will be going to the Chapel Hill area tomorrow to take part. Uh, she actually has part in her brother's service. And so pray for Joe Teeter and her family. And then Jim Inslee, as you know, passed away and his funeral will be here on Tuesday morning. The visitation will be at 10 a.m. Uh, in this room, followed by the funeral at 11. And uh, then we'll leave straight from this room and go out to the church cemetery where uh, Jim will be interned. And uh, then on Wednesday, Wednesday at 2 p.m., we do want to remember uh, Russell Willis and his family with the passing of Dot. Uh, there will be a private uh, burial uh, that morning over in Gaston County that I will be a part of with the family. And then the public service will be here at 2 p.m. And then we will leave this service and go down to the core. And they just want to have a church-wide fellowship for anybody that's here with juice and coffee and water and some light refreshments. And so uh, please pray for Russell and his three sons and their families during this very difficult time. And uh, for you guests who may not know the Willises, uh, Dr. Willis and Dot served for many years on staff at Pitts, leading our senior adult ministry. And Dot, of course, has been battling cancer. And she did go home to be with the Lord. We rejoice in that, but we do want to pray for the grief that the family is, is experiencing during this time. But sitting with the family and hearing all the stories about Russell and Dot, as you can only imagine, uh, quite a treat. And you're going to hear some of those stories on Wednesday. So again, Jim Inslee's service, visitation, 10 a.m., followed by the funeral at 11 on Tuesday, and Dot Willis, 2 p.m. on Wednesday. So uh, keep these families in your prayers, please. Would you stand for the reading of God's Word, please? The potential for our nation, Psalm 33, and we'll, of course, be concentrating on that verse that Alex made reference to earlier, verse 12, but let's go ahead and read the chapter in its entirety. The psalmist says, shout for the Lord, uh, shout, shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous, praise befits the upright. Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre. Make melody to him with the harp of ten strings. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. For the word of the Lord is upright and all his work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all their host. 
He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He puts the deeps in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom he has chosen as his heritage. The Lord looks down from heaven. He sees all the children of man. From where he sits enthroned, he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of them all and observes all their deeds. The king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation. And by its great might it cannot rescue. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love, that he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield, for our heart is glad in him, because we trust in his holy name. Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us, even as we hope in you. Father, we thank you for this word. And we pray now that through the power of your spirit, you would open our minds, our hearts, our ears to receive your word. For all flesh is as grass and as the flower of the field. In the morning, it springs up and blooms, but by nightfall, it withers and dies. But the word of our God stands forever. We thank you for this word. And Father, as Christian people, we do, in pray, do indeed pray for this nation. That this nation would return to you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, folks, as you well know, today we celebrate the nation's birthday. But all around us, what do we see? We see that America does indeed have great needs. And so while we recognize and celebrate the freedoms that America offers and we acknowledge that people from all over the world want to come here, at the same time there's an encroaching moral and spiritual decay that surely must not just concern the Christian, but it would have to concern any thinking person. What do we need? I think Psalm 33 explains exactly what we need. And it shows what God's plan is for a people. It points out that our trust cannot be in our own strength or abilities or wisdom. Our trust, not only individually, but also collectively, must be in God and God alone. 
I hope you'll take some notes this morning. First of all, with me this morning, I want you to see a promise to cherish. The psalmist said, Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom he has chosen as his heritage. He uses the word here, blessed. Some translations may say, happy. Now, that's an, an, that's an adequate translation of the word only if we remember that the Bible is not simply talking about an outward happiness. God is talking about an inward quality here, a quality of health, a quality of well-being. Now, folks, contrary to popular belief by some, it is not God's agenda or purpose that you and I would be happy. God's plan is that we would be holy. And if we're holy, there'll be this inward peace and health that will even affect our outer circumstances. Now, as we look at America, we are, are, I would ask, are we enjoying the state of well-being and peace and health? I would argue in many regards that we are not. There's a litany of issues facing our nation that if I were to go through every single one of them, I think it would be depressing. And it's too long of a list. I mean, if we were to look today at stats on the family, on marriage, on parenting, on work, on crime, etc., etc., all of those stats appear to be moving in the wrong direction. Let me just give you one example, though, and this will suffice, I hope. If you're an American male, on average, different all ethnicities, by 44% of all males by age 23 likely now have been arrested for some crime. 44%. What's going on with the American male? I say 44 because when you look at the different classes, 49% of African Americans by age 23 have been arrested for crimes. 44% of Hispanic males and 38% of white males by, again, by age 23 have been arrested for crimes. Those are troubling statistics. Those are certainly not good signs that America is enjoying this state of blessedness. Now folks, obviously this passage in its original context is referring to Israel. Israel was chosen by God and they were blessed. God told Abraham that he would build a great nation through his descendants. And then they became enslaved in a foreign land and God delivered them. Before he did so, he told Moses, you're going to see that I do indeed make a distinction between Egypt and Israel. And God brought Israel out of bondage and settled her in her own land. 
and Jeremiah too. Jeremiah talks about those early years of affection between God and his people before they forsook him. And then God asked the question, what shortcoming have you found in me that you have now turned away from me? In the early days they followed him, but they turned away. Israel was indeed blessed, but something happened and they forsook God. God would bring discipline on them and affliction on them uh, oftentimes and enemies would, God would use enemies to suppress them and then they would wake up, they would cry out to God and time and time again God would raise up a new judge or a new deliverer to bring them out of the hands of their enemies. An example of this would be when the Philistines troubled Israel. The ark of God was captured by the Philistines and God brought great judgments on the Philistines. In 1 Samuel, we read how the Philistines got together and said, we've got to send this ark back with some kind of offering. I mean, who can stand against Israel's God? Neither we nor our God, Dagon, can stand against him. And if we don't send the ark back now, we will all be destroyed. And so we see in the Old Testament time and time again how God would deliver his people. And how his affections would be on them. They were blessed. But the great thing about verse 12 here is that the blessing is open while intended for Israel. It's open to any nation whose God is the Lord. It's a gracious promise to us in America today of what could be if only we would return to God. You know, once we depended upon Him. We even put in God we trust on our currency. Do you think if we were printing money today for the first time in 2021, would we put in God we trust on our currency? Probably not. And so in many ways, we're exactly like Israel. Again, in their early days, they were devoted, but that devotion waned. In America's early days, there was great affection for God. But now, as a people, it's like we have forgotten Him and forsaken Him. I want to share some quotes with you. About 15 years ago, I shared some quotes with you. And and some people from time to time want me to repeat some of these. I've changed them around a a little bit, taken some out, added some in, so forth. But, But let me just share some things with you that are a part of our heritage. And I want to share these because, you know, if you were to listen to some voices in America today, they would tell you that the Bible and Christianity had absolutely nothing to do in the early days of this great nation. Would they be accurate? No. Let's begin. Listen, first of all, to the words of John Jay. John Jay was the first chief justice and father of the Supreme Court and one of the primary writers of the Constitution. He wrote, and I quote, 
Providence has given to our people the choice of their rulers and it is the duty as well as the privilege and interest of our Christian nation to select and prefer Christians for their rulers. He also served as both vice president and president of the American Bible Society. He went on to express a belief that the moral precepts of Christianity were absolutely necessary for good government. And he said, and again I quote, No human society has ever been able to maintain both order and freedom, both cohesiveness and liberty apart from the moral precepts of the Christian religion. Should our republic ever forget this fundamental precept of governments, we will then be surely doomed. Chief Justice of the Supreme Court. Do you think you would ever hear Chief Justice John Roberts or any other justice make statements like that today? In 1892, the Supreme Court declared this about Christianity in America. I quote, Our laws and our institutions must necessarily be based on and must include the teachings of the Redeemer of mankind. It is impossible for it to be otherwise. To this extent, our civilization and our institutions are emphatically Christian. In 1892, in the case Church of the Holy Trinity versus U.S., the Supreme Court wrote, and I quote, This is a religious people. This is historically true. From the discovery of this continent to the present hour, there is a single voice making this affirmation. These are not individual sayings, declarations of private persons. They are organic utterance. They speak the voice of the entire people. These and many other matters which might be noticed at a volume of unofficial declarations to the mass of organic utterances that this is a Christian nation. Not only did Congress in 1782 approve the use of the Bible in our schools, they even paid for them with tax dollars. And in 1844, when somebody sued to have the Bibles removed, the Supreme Court ruled, and I quote, Why should not the Bible, and especially the New Testament, be read and taught as a divine revelation in the schools? Where can the purest principles of morality be learned so clearly or so perfectly as from the New Testament? In 1643, as more and more people arrived on America's shores, they joined together to form, I should say the colony shores at that point, they joined together to form the New England Confederation. They wrote a constitution, the first constitution written in the New World, and it began with these words. And I quote, Whereas we all came into these parts with one and the same end and aim, namely to advance the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ and to enjoy the liberty of the gospel in purity and peace. Did you know that the state of Delaware, along with most others, required office holders to take an oath affirming their Christian faith before they could even assume office? 
1876, the Constitution of our state, North Carolina, reads, quote, No person who shall deny the being of God or the truth of the Protestant religion or the divine authority of the Old or New Testaments or who shall hold religious principles incompatible with the freedom and safety of the state shall be capable of holding any office or place of trust or profit in the civil department within this state, end quote. Now Christians everywhere might be wondering, then why don't we live by these requirements in government today? Now if, if you wonder what happened and why states don't enforce these documents. I want, to re, I want to remind you though that in the U.S. Constitution there was the no religious test clause within Article 6. Now by and large, however, early in U.S. history states' rights were emphasized. And so eight states, including there was Arkansas, Texas, Mississippi, Tennessee, North, uh, South Carolina, North Carolina, and Maryland. Those eight states had continued to have these requirements in their constitutions that office holders had to be Christians. In 1961, there was a court case, uh, and, and these eight states having that requirement in their constitutions was challenged, and state rights, states' rights were overturned in this regard, and of course the rule of thumb today is the no religious clause. So that's what happened there in those states that had that. But again, what do those eight states' constitutions just show us? It shows us something of our early religious heritage. Just two more quotes I'll offer and then we'll move on. Two quotes from two of our most respected presidents. In 1862, at the height of the Civil War, President Abraham Lincoln issued a general order regarding the observance of the Sabbath in the military. It's dated November 15, 1862, and it says, and I quote, The President, Commander-in-Chief of the Army and Navy, desires and enjoins the, the orderly observance of the Sabbath by the officers and men in the military and naval service. The importance for man and beast... Of the prescribed weekly rest, the sacred rights of Christian soldiers and sailors, a becoming deference to the best sentiment of a Christian people, and a due regard for the divine will demand that Sunday labor in the army and navy be reduced to the measure of only strict necessity. The discipline and character of the national forces should not suffer nor the cause they defend be imperiled by the profaning of the day of the Most High. In the personal diary of George Washington, in his own handwriting, he says, Let my heart, gracious God, 
Be so affected with your glory and majesty that I may discharge those weighty duties which thou requirest of me. Again, I have called on thee for pardon and forgiveness of sins for the sacrifice of Jesus Christ offered on the cross for me. Thou gavest thy son to die for me and hast given me assurance of my salvation. Now folks, look at the climate today. What's happened? Too many things, I think, to even begin naming them. But more and more, what do we see? That we today, just we value materialism, money, pleasure, comfort, entertainment. And we serve these things today with a zeal that was once reserved for matters of faith. And all of these things will not last Because I remind you what John says in 1 John 2. Do not love the world nor the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that's in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father but from the world. And the world is passing away and also its lust. But the one who does the will of God abides forever. Yet, folks, I remind you, there's great promise here in verse 12. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. Let's move on. Why is it so important for God to be God, for us to look to Him and trust Him and depend upon Him? Because secondly, He's an awesome God. Look at verses 6 to 9. We see there that He is an awesome Creator. You know what, I'm reminded of what Moses wrote in Genesis 1. In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters, and then God said, let there be light, and there was light. Over and over God said it, and it was so. I think of Isaiah 40, and what it says about God being our awesome creator. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens by the span and calculated the dust of the earth by the measure and weighed the mountains in a balance and the hills in a pair of scales? It is he who sits above the vault of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. He it is who reduces rulers to nothing, who makes the judges of the earth meaningless. Scarcely they've been planted, scarcely they've been sown, scarcely has their stock taken root in the earth, but he merely blows on them and they wither and the storm carries them away like stubble. To whom then will you liken me that... That I should be his equal, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who has created all these stars. The one who leads forth their host by number. He calls them all by name because of the greatness of his might and strength of his power. Not one of them is missing. Our God is an awesome creator. And what's the conclusion of this? Well, as he says here in verse 8, here's what the conclusion ought to be. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants stand in awe of him. Folks, he deserves your heart and my heart. And he deserves the devotion of the American people and of all peoples. 
Not only is he an awesome creator, he is a wonderful counselor. Look at what he goes on to say in verses 10 to 11 and 13 to 15. He talks about, you know, how the wisdom of uh, the wisdom and counsel of God stands. We know the wisdom and counsel of man fails. We know that human logic fails. God frustrates men's plans. But as the psalmist says here, his counsel stands forever. Verse 11, the second part of it says that God's counsel transcends generations. God's word was God's word to your great, 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 great granddaddy. And it's still God's word to you today. And it'll be God's word for your children and your grandchildren and your great grandchildren. It's God's word. And as Peter says, all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls off, but the word of our God stands forever. Through his word, he will counsel you and he'll give you direction for your life. As he points out in verses 13 to 15 here, he sees all, he understands all. The rulers of the earth don't. They don't see tomorrow. They don't have full knowledge of what's going on on the face of the earth. But God knows and God understands. Well, Thirdly, I want you to see a generous provision. He begins talking about that in verse 16. And first of all, he mentions the fact that he gives safety in verses 16 And 17, the king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation. And by its great might, it cannot rescue. But God does. And time again, time and time again, we see in the Old Testament how God provided safety for his people. There were times when it seemed like it was an absolute impossible scenario for Israel that they could not win. But they did because God was with them. I think of when the people had left Egypt and they were journeying toward the promised land and And as they were headed out of Egypt, they had their backs up against the Red Sea and Pharaoh sent his troops after them. And they, I mean, they were hemmed in, nowhere to go. And look at how God rescued them and destroyed Pharaoh's army. Also think about in the time of Gideon. God continued to whittle Gideon's army down to just 300 men to fight against the Midianites. And what did God do? God absolutely confused and confounded the Midianites and Gideon and his men won the victory. Against all odds, they won the victory. What do we see there? God gives his people safety. Now, folks, you think what you want to think about the following situation. You think what you want to think. But George Washington and his men certainly did not attribute the following story to coincidence. They all attribute it in their diaries to the providence of God. 
The date was August 22, 1776, just 25 days after the Declaration of Independence was signed by the final delegate. Washington's army of 9,000 found itself trapped at water's edge at the East River near Brooklyn, New York. 20,000 experienced British soldiers were poised to attack along with their ships too. But for some reason they delayed. They were waiting possibly for the British fleet to sail on up the river closer and, and set the trap. But suddenly rains came and a strong northeast wind arose preventing their ships from sailing. When night fell, Washington began to evacuate his army across the mile-wide river in small boats, just a few at a time, trying to save as many as he could. As morning approached, he knew that the boats would become easy targets for the British ships. But as the sun rose, an unusually dense fog formed and dropped visibility down to just six yards. And the fog remained in place until the very last boat carrying George Washington himself got across the river. And then the the fog lifted and the British were stunned to see the shore empty of men. Guns were fired at Washington's men but they were out of range. And not a man of the Continental Army was lost. Lucky break, again, every single one of those keeping diaries attributed it to God's watch care and providence. God gives safety. And then in verses 18 to 22, he points out God gives salvation. You know, the question for us as a people is, what must we do now? As families, as individuals, as churches, what must we do? Because, hey, who's America? We're America, all of us. Look at the action verbs in 18 to 22. Look at what he says here. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love, that he might deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. Our soul waits for the Lord. Our heart is glad in him. All of these actions... We must fear Him, we must hope in Him, we must wait for Him, we must rejoice in Him, and we must trust in Him. What's 2 Chronicles 7.14 say? If my people who are called by my name shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin And will heal their land. Folks, in light of God's salvation, we need to repent of our sins and we need to pray. What could happen in America if the church took that more seriously? What could happen? I think it must, it was 2005, 2007. I told y'all a parable. Some of you afterwards wanted a copy of it. I think it bears repeating. The parable of the mouse trap. A mouse looked through the crack in the wall to see the farmer and his wife open a package. What food might this contain? He was devastated though to discover that it was a mouse trap. 
Retreating to the farmyard, the mouse proclaimed the warning. There's a mouse trap in the house. There's a mouse trap in the house. The chicken clucked and scratched, raised her head and said, Mr. Mouse, I can tell this is of grave concern to you, but it's of no consequence to me. I can't be bothered by this. The mouse turned to the pig and told him, There's a mouse trap in the house. There's a mouse trap in the house. The pig sympathized but said, I'm so very sorry, Mr. Mouse, but there's nothing I can do about it. But pray, be assured you'll at least be in my prayers. The mouse turned to the cow. There's a mouse trap in the house. There's a mouse trap in the house. And she said, wow, Mr. Mouse, I'm sorry for you, but you know what? It's no skin off my nose. And so the mouse returned to the house, dejected, all alone to face the farmer's mousetrap. That night a sound was heard throughout the house. The trap had snapped and caught its prey. The farmer's wife rushed to see what was caught. In the darkness she did not see that it was a venomous snake whose tail was caught in the trap. And the snake bit the farmer's wife. The farmer rushed her to the hospital and she returned home with a fever. Well everybody knows what you do. Home remedies with a fever. Give them chicken soup. So the farmer took his hatchet and went out to the barnyard and killed the chicken. But his wife's sickness continued. And so friends and neighbors came to sit with her around the clock. To feed them, the farmer butchered the pig. Well, the farmer's wife didn't improve. In fact, she died. So many people came for the funeral. The farmer had the cow slaughtered to provide enough meat for all of his guests. And so remember, folks, next time we hear something like, you know what, when we see all of America's problems and all the problems, in the, it, it, it's, it's somebody else's problem. I want to remind you, we're all at risk. Don't think that everything we see going on in the nation right now has no consequence to us as we sit in our safe little pockets. Again, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. Would you stand, please? I know we say all the time, would you pray for the land? But will you? Will you earnestly pray for the land? Pray for our schools our local governments. Pray for our leaders. Paul reminds us in 1 Timothy chapter 2 that we're to pray for world leaders so that they will make decisions that will not impede the progress of the gospel. You pray for your nation's leaders, world leaders. Folks, pray for the church in America. You know, last year, there were hundreds of thousands of Christians 
joining a guy here in North Carolina praying on the mountain, praying for a revival in America. Don't give up. Don't give up praying for America's churches. Pray for America's pastors and spiritual leaders and churches. Folks, pray. And as you pray, what's in your heart that you need to repent of? And then there's the promise here. God will hear, God will forgive, and God will heal. Let's sing together.